And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to yet another edition of Hunter Gatherers, the official podcast of the Hunter S. Thompson Stories. Broadcasting from Historic Magazine Street in New Orleans over a crisp, clear day is Christopher Tidmore. And we are joined, as always, with by our host, Curtis Robinson, who's coming to us from Portland, Maine. And Curtis, this is sort of a red-letter day, and today's podcast is the first in a series of what we think will be some of the most exciting podcast that this show has done since it began for it is a true anniversary is it not yeah yeah if you start talking about hunter thompson stories this is the uh this is the year uh 72 of course 50 years ago this year we got uh both fear and loathing in las vegas and we got uh fear and loathing on the campaign trail 72 i imagine the technical fans out there will realize that Fear and Loathing Campaign Trail as a book actually came out in uh, 73, but the campaign trail coverage was serialized in, uh, of course, in 72. Rolling but, Stone, baby. Uh, the, 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 um, some of them, yeah. Well, and, and it begins, I think one of the things that you have to begin with is that it was when 18-year-olds were given the vote. And thus all these millions of new voters were coming and Rolling Stone was seen as the way to get to them. Everyone was, was not catering to Rolling Stone because they liked Rolling Stone. I'm sure many of the politicos at the time didn't know what Rolling Stone but they knew that this was the way to the youth vote, which for a lot of people meant that Hunter Thompson was your way to the youth vote. And, you know, God love you if that, if that, was, your, if that was your situation in 1972. So our concept... And I will tell you, we, we've discussed this, but I, I will tell you in a minute, I don't think it's going to work for me, <laughs> is that the Campaign Trail 72 is organized, of course, by month. And so the idea is to read each month, discuss each month, but not read ahead. We'll discuss each month, but not read it. Well, that's not going to work. Um, I did manage to limit myself to January. For people who are trying to remember the, the book, it begins with him actually in December of 71, going to moving the national desk to Washington, D.C. We've had guests who have talked about that who are from Washington, D.C., of how shocking that was at the time to read that Washington was the rape capital of the world and, uh, and he was not overly taken with the nation's capital. So now we go into January, and it's, it's, it's been really enlightening for me. I mean, some of the greatest hits there, the, he's discussing – you can see him setting himself up for the series. And, and so I made it as far as January, although having read the book, of course, years ago, I know that February is when he actually goes to New Hampshire. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to wait. So anyway, January, January I've just read January 1972, Hunter Thompson on the campaign trail, looking for, of course, parallels to this election season. And that's part of it. And let's let's explain that real quick. Part of the reason, not only because of the anniversary uh, of 50 years, but what's happening this with the midterms going into 2024. Actually, Curtis and I were debating at one point, should we call this fear and loathing on the campaign trail 22 to 24? But it's the idea that they say history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. If ever there's an election that rhymes with 1972, with Wallace, with Nixon, with what's going on, with inflation, with international problems, with, you know, uh, basically a, a small bushfire war where thousands of Americans died and we left in ignominity, that's going to be coming. 
if all that is coming is to uh, in 1972, it's kind of reflecting what's happening today. And it's no, I don't know what your reading's been so far, but I have found it strange and both discouraging and reassuring. Of the parallels. I mean, when he's quoting in, in the January chapter, he's quoting a Democratic operative saying, if Nixon wins, uh, the country's in real trouble. He goes to some lengths to talk about the false choice, you know, that that both sides start with 40 percent and no one's more than 20 percent different from anyone else. He, he talks about uh, he even takes a shot at objective journalism, saying you won't find it there under his body. So so he sets the stage so well, and he's talking about new voters, and he, he's, t- he's talking the cautionary tale of being set up for a choice between evils. And, you know, Hunter and I used to talk all the time about the fact that primaries, presidential primaries, but primaries are about voting for someone, whereas general elections are about voting against the other person. You know, I've said many times that, you know, Trump was elected because more people voted against Hillary Clinton than voted you know, against Donald Trump. And in the second Trump election, I think more people turned out to vote against Trump than turned out to vote against Biden. And so you, you see that stage being set and it's, it's kind of breathy. So it, it's you almost end up with this idea of. It's reassuring that people were concerned then. <laughs> However, have we learned nothing in 50 years? Well, I mean, I will tell you, uh, if you'd said in 1972, uh, if you look back in the good old days of Richard Nixon, people would have looked at you as if you were crazy. But the truth is, (laughs) to some extent, some people, if you're a Democrat and you're saying, okay, a Republican's in the White House, and he's been advocating universal health care, basically Medicare for all, and he is talking about wage and price controls, and he's talking about... You'd, be, you'd strangely say, wait, wait, this is a Republican in today's parlance, but it was common at the time. And then, of course, George McGovern, he, he was... I, he actually... I, was, I took a class from George McGovern. I knew him. And while he is, becomes the maven of the far left in some ways, he's the most unlikely far left guy. And there are par- parallels to, to Biden. He's, he's a former... He's a highly decorated former Bimer pilot, McGovern. He is somebody who is his has got a countenance of an old style gentleman. He's he's different than what you'd think is a firebrand of the left. I mean, Hubert Humphrey, for that matter, Henry Wallace, he certainly is not. So there there are increasing parallels, and of course, the wild card of himself, the man from Alabama, George Wallace. If ever there's a proto Trump going around, it's Wallace. Though I would. I would argue Wallace on his worst day was smarter than Donald Trump on his best. And I say this as a registered Republican. So, you know, anyway. So you, 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 get, a, you get a chance to, to say that. But, you know, we forget, or at least I, I had forgotten a bit, that Wallace was not a fringe candidate. Wallace won Florida uh, in the primaries. And he was, he was quite the firebrand. And, you know, on Hunter, while denouncing the stuff you would expect to be denounced. He also says that of the people he sees, you know, Wallace is the one who can get everyone fired up. This idea of rallies is not something Trump came up with by himself. This was a Wallace tactic. Oh, very much so. Very, very much so. And, and the, I don't know, it, it's, it's interesting that we're all, we're only into January and already I'm like, Oh my God, I've had five. Oh my God moments. And it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see, to revisit it and, and see where it goes. 
uh, I should tell you that that uh, I took a shot at this 10 years ago. 10 years ago during the primaries, I actually went to New Hampshire. I went to Manchester and I was going to try to track some of the old haunts, but the the hotel they had used as their headquarters was being rebuilt. The Every, every single part of it went wrong. And so it, it, it didn't come to fruition. I'm hoping this tracks a little bit better. So here we are. We're set. This idea that you, that you have so articulately brought before us, Curtis Robinson, is that for the next year, as the 2022 elections are going on, we will look at them through the prism of what was going on in 1972, and particularly fear and loathing on the campaign trail, 72, and each month share a passage from that month, because that's how it was written, each month of the campaign trail. We already heard last week of, in that book, Hunter Thompson, as you referenced, arriving in D.C., seeing this as the rape capital, basically seeing this dark if anything, vapid place is how he looks at it. And now he's ready to set up his national campaign. And you're sort of tracking that in the book. Yes, yes, you're tracking it. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know why I find it so odd because a part of the book is, it has to do, of course, with football as it would. But the 49ers are in a big playoff game in January of 72. And of course, the, as at this taping, the 49ers, are going to face Los Angeles this very weekend. So it's, I'm like, wow, uh, the more change, but, but listen, listen, we'll, we'll turn to the text itself. And he, he's on an airplane with this guy who's a big time democratic operative. He's talking about his, his candidate, which is musky in this case, but he, the guy says the main reason I'm working for him is that he's the only guy we have who can beat Nixon. If Nixon wins again, we're in real trouble. That's the real issue this time beating Nixon. It's hard to even guess how much damage those bastards will do if they get in for another four years. I nodded. The argument was familiar. I had even made it myself here and there, but I was beginning to sense something very depressing about it. How many more of these goddamn elections are we going to have to write off as lame, but, quote, regrettably necessary, quote, holding actions? And how many more of these stinking double-downer sideshows will we have to go through before we can get ourselves straight enough to put together some kind of national election that will give me and the at least 20 million people I used to agree with a chance to vote for something instead of always being faced with that old familiar choice between the lesser of two evils. Well, there you go. So much has changed. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, well it, it, it has, it's, it's so, it's so, it, they, well, the electability is such a big deal and, and, and it's going to be again, of course, and it's going to be um, there. By the way, people who remember the book will remember that the January chapter is the chapter that goes out with him saying, as for politics, I think Art Buchwald said it best last month in his fan letter to Nixon. I always wanted to go into politics, but I was never light enough to make the team. <laughs> <laughs> Art Buchwald, I, you know, when's the last time Art was quoted? I just loved it. I love it so much. Art Buckwell, was, uh, we, we don't have, we don't have the political humorist that we once had. You know, it, it, it's that that was an art form to write with a certain degree of humor. And, and as I look at every political blog, nobody really just sort of has a sardonic wit anymore about American politics. We've gotten too blandly serious. No, I I, 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 don't, I don't know that my my horrible fear 
is that people of our age were not reading Rolling Stone in 1972. And, <laughs> and there's something out there that's very funny and that's very sardonic, but we don't know it because we're not reading it. And I, I myself search for it. And I would also say, you know, in terms of political humor, I, th- I think Bill Maher is holding his own. And I think he's one of the few that, that takes swipes at both sides the way, the way Hunter did. But, uh, you know, I, it's not a great time for humor in this country anyway. Part of it is because, I mean, I will say, I've often wondered what Hunter would make of the idea that you can't use humor to deconstruct a situation. It, let's just say the, the woke culture and Hunter might not have gone along well together. Um, and just well, they never it, did. I mean, it's like, yeah, well, you know, you'll notice, you'll notice Hunter didn't stay on staff anywhere any length of time. He yeah. was uh, the ultimate freelancer, so to speak. Yeah. But it, yeah, sure. I mean, that that's that's always going to be there. He took he took heat throughout his career. But it's uh, it's interesting. It's going to be a big Hunter year. I, I don't know. I keep hearing rumors of different celebrations, and you know, in this, of course, the the COVID beast will have its way with us one way or another. I think one of the things, you know, it's also the, the, this year is the hundredth anniversary of Ulysses uh, for James Joyce fans. So, you know, God knows what Bloomsday is going to be like this year. You know, I, I learned something that's interesting and it comes into, because I, I just got at the garden district bookshop, the hundredth anniversary Ulysses editions and they're beautiful and all this, but I've been reading George Orwell over the last year. George Orwell, if he had lived a little longer after 1984, his ambition was to do an, a, a, an English version of Ulysses. And uh, Ulysses is in English, but I'm talking about from the perspective of sort of the Cockney underclass of London, their form of Ulysses. And he died before he could do it. But it, it's one of those ironical things, that, you know, what ifs that didn't come about. But when I'm thinking about what ifs that didn't come about, if you look at this election, we're, st- we're now at the midterms. Obviously, it's not a presidential election year. But there, there already are parallels coming in. You have Joe Manchin playing, in a matter of speaking, the role of Henry Jackson, Scoop Jackson, sort of that prototypical moderate which drives the, the left crazy in so many different ways. But thank God they have them because they would be in real trouble if they didn't. You have a southern governor who is challenging the rationale in it, and that's uh, DeSantis in Florida. And what is coming up? The electability argument. He's the one guy who can uh, actually do better than Trump against Joe Biden. You've got Biden, people sticking with him, even though the left doesn't have it, because they know Trump's coming back. Everybody, it's, it's being said from the floor of the United States Senate. It is kind of one of those situations where, while Biden's going to second term, we're sort of reversing the players it could very well be 1972 all over again. Well, there's so many of the same dynamics. Yeah. And it, again, both reassuring and depressing. The, the, dynamic, the dynamics are there. And Hunter's argument of, you know, how long you make the, the argument uh, about Senator Manchin, but I mean, you know, how, how long the, the Bernie Sanders people who are listening to us are screaming right now at uh, at whatever device they're using. So, you know, that's what we were saying. We have said this. We, you know, we have, we, you know, you sold us on electability and we bought into it and, and, it, and maybe they're not as 100% on board now as, as they were then. But, but that, that is that the electability gambit is going to be right there again. Uh, I think a lot of this, I think that the wild card that's going to be very different 
is redistricting. I think redistricting is going to be a bigger deal than anyone can humanly imagine. As you know, I don't think it'll get done. I think there will be districts out there pending in court. And, you know, essentially the Democrats and Republicans, like like we're told the crime fact did at one time, they just, they've divvied up the country. There are so few aggressively competitive congressional districts now that if you win your, if you win your primary, you win your district. So how that turns out is anyone's guess. That said, boy, the parallels are monstrous. Well, I mean, the, the redistricting argument, of course, if you've noticed, Curtis, you were hearing a lot of Democrats yelling Republican redistricting, Republican. Have you noticed that that you haven't heard that in the last couple of weeks very much? Well, part of it had to do uh, part of it had to do with in New York, they had a bipartisan commission which came up with a map with competitive districts. It deadlocked and got thrown to the legislature, and suddenly the Democrats said, "Oh wait, we can gerrymander five to ten other seats." <laughs> it's even Daily Cause well, was was kind of embarrassed to admit, uh, "Okay, yeah, this is what we've been complaining about," and yeah, it might help Democrats. And, and so it was kind of, as, but you had the reverse thing going on in Ohio, in Louisiana, you've got a fact. Where Steve Scalise, the majority leader, let me point out that the majority, the the minority, the majority leader at that time, um, when all this was going on, was the uh, representative of the first congressional district of Louisiana. His name was Hale Boggs, and uh, guess what? The person who's aiming for the majority leadership in this is the representative of the first congressional district of Louisiana, Steve Scalise. Other things that don't well, change, you know. So it, it, history, history certainly rhymes. <laughs> so you know, but you know, the the other thing I would argue is is that you know Hunter would talk many times about the youth vote is the future of the party and always will be. So so once again, we're we're curious about how the new voters and the youth vote will come into play in a midterm election particularly if, if Democrats are going to, to carry that vote, they're going to need a, a lot of it. But one of the things that was interesting, they were talking about uh, in the January chapter, he was talking about 25 million new voters, 18 to 25, for this election. But they, they only expected uh, 10% turnout. So it was 2.5 million, which is no small turnout. But he, but he was always disappointed at the youth turnout. He always thought that, you know, going to rallies and, and doing other things and later of course you know going online and doing signing petitions and things with need but but you know would would they go vote and, and he, of course his election his election when he ran for sheriff was all about turning out the vote i mean it was all about registering and 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 putting people uh you know into the ballots and this wasn't just Democrats. And let me point out something that's interesting, and it shows the focus on the youth vote in this campaign and also how they had absolutely no idea what to do with it. So in January of in 1972, the, na- the head of the uh, National Young Republicans is a guy by the name of Morton Blackwell. If that name makes sounds familiar, he ends up becoming the guy who coordinates a lot of the national turnout for Ronald Reagan in 1980. He's charged by the then campaign manager of Committee to Re-Elect the, the President, one of the most unfortunate acronyms ever to be created, CREEP, to create a national youth outreach for the GOP, because they're hearing all this from the Democrats are going to bring out $25 million, they have to answer it. So they hit upon the idea that midsummer there's going to be a national, a big rally for Nixon in Florida, in Tampa, Florida. And they're going to fly young people from all over the country. 
and they proceed to do it. And they take all this money and they fly people to this rally that probably was thirty or 40,000 people at it. It was massive. They were trying to show that this was a rally for Nixon on the level of Wallace's rally. And they sent everybody home and they didn't get one telephone number or mailing address. <laughs> Morton, who I was his assistant yes. at one point, uh, worked yes. for him in D.C. And he was like, this goes down to political malpractice on the level of some. Yes. But he said we didn't. They didn't know what to do with young voters. They didn't know how to approach them. They. It was like, how do we translate to these strange young people that we have never dealt with before? That's the kind of psychology that's going on in January of 1972. So. Well, I guess I guess now it would be sort of you know which social media are exactly. they still using and which which ones have gone to the wayside because that that would be that would be the parallel to now. But it's you know so. You know, to, to sort of close the loop on it, I should tell you that my discipline to not read ahead is going to be minimalist. Uh, I think I'll, I'll blow through February because it's uh, it's getting very interesting. And, and it's weird to see the acceleration. You can almost see the, the, the election picking up steam, which is sort of what it's doing now. I mean, January is, is, is behind us. We'll go through, we'll go through February right now. Everything's going to be focused on the Supreme court nomination. And, and of course, whatever ends up happening in, in Ukraine, although we'll probably get February off from that because there'll be the, the Olympics going on in China, but nonetheless, uh, March comes. And, and of course that's when the elections really start to pick up. And we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Think about how late the State of the Union address is this year. It's the latest it's ever been. It's in March, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, so we're going to we're going to see that uh, starting to propel us forward. We'll see whatever happens on the Supreme Court. So you know, it's sort of here we go. But politics is going to be right up front. And boy, it's you know for an off year election, it's going to pick up a lot of heat. But there was something else going on around this time, and it's going to be coming in. There was a case that was approaching the Supreme Court. It's not going to manifest yet, but it was starting to be on people's radar screens. It was called Roe versus Wade. Think about what's going on theoretically right now on cases that are coming to the Supreme Court. The first affirmative action implementations on the university levels are really, they start in 68 and 69, but they're really becoming widespread in what year? 1972. What's happening in the Supreme Court? There's a case on university affirmative action. So this 50th anniversary, a lot of these issues that were on the forefront at the time are actually coming back to dominate our politics this year. What year was Roe v. Wade? I don't remember. Yeah, the case was proceeding for the courts in 72. So I can put in and find out very particularly. But uh, Because... This is it's the same era. It's, 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 the, it's the same kind of thing. And, and I don't think the passions have abated any, any bit. I think everyone's uh, fired up. I think it's 1973 that it actually the ruling happens. So, but so I mean, it's, 72, it's, it's, 70, it's a 72 case decided in 73. Basically, yes. So, that, so it's, it's going through the courts at this point. Um, and it's going to be in 73 that the Burger Court is going to have it with, it with a decision coming down. So... It's Norma McCorry, the, the actual rape that leads to Roe v. Wade of Norma McCorry is, is in 1969. And, um, and uh, of course, that's going to be launching. It. So everybody knew this was on the radar screen, uh, what was going to happen with abortion. I mean, these are the same issues. Wallace is running against affirmative action. 
That's one of his themes that he's running against in the election. Don't think that if the Supreme Court rules against it, it won't be a theme for Donald Trump. All Exactly right. So I guess the reassuring part of that is that we didn't split the country down the middle uh, in 72. Of course, there is there is the argument that just because you dodged other bullets doesn't mean you're going to dodge this one. And I'd point out, you know, well, if Nixon had his southern strategy that he was going to try to flip southern states for the first time, what is going on right now? Biden has what his what you could call his southwest strategy. He's trying to keep Arizona in his column, Nevada, and try to start flipping southwest states that are conventionally Republican. So it all it all comes down to the January when all these things are happening. They ha- happened 50 years ago. They're happening again. And this podcast will happen pretty much every month talking about what happened in 72 and the parallels to 22 going into 24. Well, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I'll be totally fired up by the end of the February chapter. It should be fun. <laughs> um, meanwhile, on that note, I think we can, Curtis, uh, uh, call January at an end for both hunter-gatherers and for fear and loathing on the campaign trail in 1972. Well, so here we go, and uh, uh, we will end up uh, probably... Well, I was going to, I was going to make a drug joke, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and folks, we'll see you not only next week, but next month for more Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 22 with Curtis Robinson and Christopher Tidmore here on Hunter Gatherers, the official podcast of the Hunter S. Thompson Stories. See you next week.